All grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Epiphany is the season of light, as you all well know. And today, this is well attested to by all three of our readings today. For example, from our gospel, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, that's just a remarkable statement to which we will have to return a little bit later on. But just my initial reaction to Jesus' declaration that I, I'm being told, am the light of the world, I'm thinking, does he know me? Of course he knows me. He's Jesus. He knows everyone. So we'll have to look a little bit closer at that one down the road as we go. Presaging what Jesus says about our righteousness in his Sermon on the Mount today, Isaiah, way back when, first sets the stage by explaining that when we let our righteous deeds shine forth, that is, and he gets specific, when we welcome the homeless, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, then, says Isaiah, your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your righteousness shall go out before you. That's verse 8 from our Old Testament reading today. Even the psalmist from Psalm 112 shed some more light on the subject, as we read earlier. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous, from Psalm 112. Now again, that verse 4 says, light dawns where? In the darkness. In the darkness. There's no greater need for light to shine before you upon you, around you, than when you are surrounded by darkness. And the deeper you're into the darkness, the more desperate you are for the light. It's true on a physical level, and it's true also on a spiritual level as well, isn't it? Now, as we look around the world today, I think it's fair to say that we're living in some dark times. Perhaps you're reading your news feeds like I am and running across headlines like this. Unprecedented danger. Russia-Ukraine war pushes iconic doomsday clock closer to midnight than ever it's been in its entire history. Now, not to be an alarmist or anything, but now, according to these people, it's only 90 seconds from midnight. Kind of a scary thought. You either laugh or cry about it. More news, U.S. four-star general Michael A. Minahan, just a couple of days ago, this was in February, he sent a memo to the Air Force that he commands, giving them orders to prepare for war with China. Within the next two years, by 2025, he predicts we will be at war with China over Taiwan's future. What a grim prospect that would be. So is that enough dark backdrop so far? Those reports were looking at things from a geopolitical angle. But what about taking a cultural angle on America today? Lutheran pastor and author, Quentin Wesselschmidt, a good Italian pastor, <laughs> he writes, our contemporary world is characterized by blatant individualism. Excessive selfishness, minimal involvement that verges on personal isolationism, he calls it, and extreme fragmentation along ethnic and personal interest lines. 
Ours is not a society, he concludes, that is willing to have sacrificial concern for others. Now, would you say that's a fair assessment of American culture? Shockingly, Pastor Wessel Schmidt wrote that back in 1986. If that was a fair assessment of the 1980s America, it's an even more accurate description, isn't it, of pop culture today. I'm afraid our country today is a far cry from that city on a hill imagery that Jesus uses in his Sermon on the Mount. And it's a far cry from that same depiction in another not quite so famous a sermon by 17th century Puritan John Winthrop. You guys remember John Winthrop? John, he's the one who famously idealized America as that city on a hill, whose charter it was to emit an exemplary, exemplary light for the rest of the world to follow. A Model of Christian Charity was the title of Winthrop's now famous sermon, preached originally in 1630 to an audience of some 700 intrepid followers who helped found the Massachusetts Bay Colony, of which Winthrop was the governor. Here's an actual ex excerpt from that sermon so you can appreciate the intent and the challenge they had before them for a brighter future. Quote, for we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. We don't use that expression, but I think that would be like a TikTok fail that went viral and everyone would be laughing at you. Now, one wonders what word Winthrop would come up with today if he could kind of jump time and view 21st century America. Maybe he wouldn't have any words for it, just a flabbergasted, wow, 50 states now and additional territories and a population of over 300 million citizens. But more importantly still, what word would God choose to describe our nation? What do you think about that? Are we a city on a hill? Ronald Reagan, as many of you recall, added a little shine, his own little shining spin to this. He called America a shining city on a hill. But of course, the original expression goes all the way back, long before the American colonies, back to the most famous sermon preached of all time. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. There was Jesus talking with his disciples about establishing an earthly kingdom. Some might interpret it that way, but we would not see it that way at all from an historic Lutheran perspective. We believe one can faithfully serve both God and country, of course, but the two God, country, or church and state, get into trouble when the two separate kingdoms get confused with one another or intermingled or they get equated with one another. The right-hand kingdom of the church and the left-hand kingdom of the government should not be allowed to be equated or intermingled. And when a nation's precepts conflict with well, the word of God, 
St. Peter said it best. We must obey God rather than men. From Acts 5. We have a clear word from our Lord himself on this matter. Right before his crucifixion, at the hands of Roman procurator Pontius Pilate, who represented, by the way, one of, if not the most powerful earthly empire history has ever known, the Roman Empire, Jesus makes this confession before Pilate. Quote, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is of another place. From the beginning, that is right after Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, Matthew records Jesus began to preach. And he preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, from Matthew 4. So this was not an earthly kingdom then, was it? It was a heavenly kingdom. And the kingdom was near because the king, Jesus, was near. He was present. And it was this kingship of his that got deliberately twisted up and then leveraged by the hostile Jewish leaders when they persuaded Pilate to crucify Jesus. We have no king but Caesar, they claimed at that time, before Pilate. Not long after seeing Pilate, Jesus was led out to Golgotha, and it was a dark day indeed. In fact, darkness covered the land midday for three full hours while Jesus hung dying on the cross. He who was the light of the world, indeed, he who created light by the sheer power of his word, light be, that light was snuffed out on that first Good Friday. Then enveloped by the powers of darkness, sealed within the pitch black stillness of the tomb, dead air, they laid the lifeless body of him who is the life. And in there, with our Lord Jesus Christ, were sealed all the sins of the world, including all yours, all mine, every dark deed, every nasty thought, and every warped intention of our deceitfully wicked hearts. There they remained and ever shall remain, forever buried, irretrievably deep, tossed down a bottomless pit. Yes, the sins of the world would remain buried forever, but the Lord Jesus Christ triumphantly emerges in a flash of brilliant light on the third day. Hallelujah. We're not in Lent yet. I can still say hallelujah. As John's gospel tells it, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome the light. Amen. So Paul nicely wraps up this truth of light's triumph over darkness, and he hands it over to us as a most precious gift for us who are baptized into the kingdom of heaven. Says Paul, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6. Now this gets back to Jesus unexpectedly calling us, his disciples, the light of the world. That is an amazing label for a man of unclean lips who dwells among a people of unclean lips. If you don't mind me, put you on the hot seat there. As a very frightened Isaiah the prophet once confessed using those same terms. How could Jesus call his disciples the light of the world? 
it goes back to our uniting with Christ through baptism. We died to sin with Christ, and we have been raised to life, to new life, as a new creation in Christ. Christ, as he puts it himself in today's gospel, came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and to fulfill also everything the prophets prophesied about him. On the cross, he declared it, finished, fulfilled, paid in full, done, finito. There's the Italian. On the cross, Christ did what he was sent here to do. Luther called that the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, and we, in turn, get his righteousness. Hallelujah. What a deal. For some, it sounds too good to be true, but it is true. Believe it. St. Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians who needed to hear this truth as well. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And for you folks from Missouri, I better show you chapter and verse lest you think I'm making this up. 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? David looked it up. I think he's looking at it right now. You can, you can look it up, and it is music to a sinner's ear. Misery sinners, that is, any miserable sinners, if you want to go from Missouri Synod to miserable sinner. But there are plenty of sinners to go all around, across all denominations. The point is, Jesus says, you are now denoted by the light of the world. That's you. If he says it, you best be believing it, You are the light of the world, because he says so. That settles it. But there was a question I left dangling back there a little while ago. I asked, what word would God choose to describe our nation today? Well, if we, the church, the community of the baptized, are light, granted the lesser light, like the moon, reflects the true light of the sun, and for our purposes, you can spell sun, S-O-N, that's fine, then we, as little lights, are meant to go and shine forth in the darkness that's out there. As a matter of fact, of this, St. Peter affirms you now in no uncertain terms from his epistle, chapter 2. You are a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So wherever you go in this world, whatever continent, whatever country, whatever county or cafeteria, if there are those there who have not yet heard this word of forgiveness that is free in Christ, then there's some darkness into which you can shine some of God's love forth into. And don't let a little bit of bad news news scare you off or discourage you. Remember today's Psalm 112. Blessed is he who is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And now may he who began a good work in you bring that to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.